This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Before flooding ravaged Pakistan, the nuclear-armed country's future already seemed fairly unpredictable. Cato's Sahar Khan discusses some of the background politics in Pakistan that Americans ought to understand going forward. I don't want to draw any unnecessary or inappropriate parallels, but watching the uh, story unfold in uh, Pakistan about Imran Khan, uh, it sounds at least in some particulars like kind of what's going on in the U.S. right now. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There are a lot of parallels. I don't think it's a false parallel to draw between what's happening in Pakistan right now and the United States. So for those of our listeners who don't know what's happening in Pakistan, basically the former prime minister Imran Khan, who was ousted in April with a no confidence vote, has been going around the country campaigning because he's still allowed to do so legally. And he is putting pressure on the current government of Pakistan to hold early general elections. Right now, elections are scheduled for October 2023. And he basically wants elections to take place sooner, mainly because it's it's an advantage for him and his political party, which is called Pakistan Tariqa Saf. But he's been roaming around the country, having large, very large, very well-attended rallies, calling on his supporters to march to the capital and overthrow the current government. Um, he hasn't officially said overthrow, but a lot of his rhetoric points to that. He does not acknowledge the legitimacy of the current interim government, and he very much is trying to you know, topple them or at least get some support to, to topple them. Um, and this is similar to the United States, mainly because Imran Khan is also using a lot of misinformation. He's been going around blaming the United States for his political troubles. For example, he said that the no confidence, uh, he basically said that a lot of his coalition partners who went to the opposition were funded by the United States or were bribed by the United States. And that's why they went to the opposition. He blames the United States for um uh, domestic interference and this is a, a huge problem and basically what this means is that you know Imran Khan is, is his use of misinformation has become a, a huge problem and it's it's creating problems within Pakistan's domestic politics as well and um you know fundamentally the, the issue at hand is what should the United States do you know, should the United States care about Pakistan's domestic problems or should it not? And in my view, the United States should care about what's going on in Pakistan. All right. Well, as a matter of policy, what does that what does that mean? And and what what are the specific reasons that the U.S. ought to uh, be concerned about what's going on in Pakistan? Well, the first reason is that Imran Khan basically is still a political player. He's still somebody who will potentially engage with the United States. Um, Imran Khan is basically not gone. He's still in the scene. And he will most likely, in, in my view, he might win um, ele general elections whenever they take place. They're supposed to take place in fall of 2023. Um, and I, and the reason why I say that he might win is that there were um, provincial elections in Punjab and the, the province of Punjab is Pakistan's most populous province. And it's usually been the seat of control for Pakistan Muslim League. 
But uh, Bax- uh, Imran Khan's political party, Tariq Ansaf, actually won se- actually won like 16 seats out of 20 in Punjab's provincial elections. So that shows to me that Punjab might be shifting towards uh, Pakistan Tariq Ansaf. And whoever has Punjab basically has, uh, you know, the prime ministership and, and, and can form the coalition government. So Imran Khan is sticking around. And even though my assessment is that the Biden administration might be a little wary of Imran Khan um, and might not necessarily want to engage with him all that much. He might come back. So the Biden administration or future U.S. governments need to have some sort of strategy to deal with Pakistan at a whole, especially now that U.S. troops are out of Afghanistan. That doesn't mean that Pakistan is not a player. So this goes to sort of my second reason for engagement, which is that usually Pakistan the U.S. has wanted to engage with Pakistan because of Afghanistan, because of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. Now, that war officially is over. We could talk about whether or not it actually is, but officially it's over. There are no U.S. troops in Afghanistan anymore. And um, Pakistan kind of feels that it's back to where it was post-Cold War, which is the United States is kind of ignoring Pakistan and whatever. I think, of course, that's a bad strategy, too. Um while Afghanistan and Pakistan are two separate countries, that doesn't mean that the U.S. should only engage with Pakistan when there's something going on in Afghanistan or it wants some kind of leverage in Afghanistan. Um, and the third reason mainly is Pakistan's economy, which all things aside, I think is actually the most important reason why the Biden administration should engage with Pakistan. Pakistan is a nuclear armed country that has a sizable youth population and just a sizable population. It is absolutely in no one's interest for Pakistan's economy to fail, for Pakistan to become Sri Lanka, which is currently going through a horrendous economic crisis. So in my view, the U.S. should try to help Pakistan get the loans. Um, They have an IMF package that was passed in July, and the IMF is supposed to distribute the first installment of funds, I think, um, hopefully soon. And Pakistan has been asking the U.S. for some help in that regard. So I think the Biden administration should at least engage with Pakistan to help its economy get out of this funk. What What are the costs to the U.S. if that doesn't happen? The costs are astronomical. And I I don't want to sound alarmist, but again, Pakistan is a nuclear armed state. And for it to fail is it would be a bigger deal than Sri Lanka failing, um, than any other country without nuclear weapons failing personally. And second, it's it's it has a massive population. Failing would mean a huge potential migration crisis potential um, economic crisis, and then a strategic security crisis as well. So it still can be saved. It's not that it's necessarily on the brink of failure, but that's basically the main ultimate cost. Has it this uh, kind of relationship, the one that you appear to be advocating, I mean, hasn't this been the longstanding relationship with Pakistan? That is, we feed their their leadership a bunch of money— and then they sort yeah. of help us at times uh, with like military strategy. I mean, I, I guess my my bigger question is, why isn't this India's problem? <laughs> well, that's a great question. I think it's not India's problem because India basically doesn't want it to be a problem. And then also India has some of its own issues going on with its sort of religious, religious nationalism and its own economic troubles. And, and also how it's really, I think the U.S. is a little... You know, the U.S.-India relationship is, is, has been a, a little, uh, it, there's been some tension there, mainly because India 
has not been as critical of Vladimir Putin and his invasion of Ukraine as the U.S. would like. So there's a, there's other stuff going on with India. But in terms of just Pakistan, certainly Pakistan. And I, I would like to say Pakistan for all, you know, for everything that's out there and everything that's happened in the relationship has been an ally to the United States. But it's one of those friendships. It's like a frenemy kind of relationship. So the U.S. has certainly given money to Pakistani leaders, political leaders and military leaders. But it, had, it has always been with the lens of Afghanistan. We're giving money to Pakistan to help us in Afghanistan. And that kind of relationship now, you know, decades of it is really, I think, been been bad for the bilateral relationship because Pakistan feels that the U.S. only helps it when it has some other interest, not Pakistan's interest. And the United States feels that Pakistan never does enough. So I do think this is also a bigger sort of meta opportunity to shift the relationship from a security lens to an economic lens, because there are other ways of engagement between the two countries, in addition to just, you know, funneling arms and money and and training unsavory actors. Even if the U.S. were to uh, attempt to deepen its relationship with uh, Pakistan for the purpose of, you know, making a nuclear armed state, not a failed state, how does that feed the narratives of the people who want to blame the United States for everything that's going wrong in Pakistan? It seems like the only uh, way the U.S. can deal with Pakistan is at like a, a significant arm's length relationship so that a lot of those narratives simply would not succeed? Or does it matter what we do? Look, the anti-Americanism in Pakistan is pretty high, but anti-Americanism is something that is, Pakistan is not unique to it. So I, to some extent, I think the U.S. needs to ignore some of the anti-American sentiment because the reality, the empirical information doesn't necessarily match that. So, for example, there are always lines outside outside U.S. consulates and embassies where people want visas. They want to come to the United States. They want a tourist visa, an education visa, a business visa, all the visas. Not only that, um, the U.S. has the Fulbright Scholarship. Pakistan is one of the highest recipients of the Fulbright Scholarship. So there's a lot of avenues for engagement in that realm as well. And as I mentioned, Pakistan has a huge youth bulge, a lot of potential, and they want to engage with the United States. They want to have a good relationship and be able to travel. Also because the Pakistani diaspora in the United States is growing. So they have ties not only to the United States, where they are U.S. citizens or green car holders, and so they're vested in you know, U.S. domestic politics, but they're also invested in Pakistan because they have family in Pakistan. They are sending remittances to Pakistan. So this is, in a, in a sense... A, a different kind of moment than than in the past. Um, and, and the anti-Americanism, I think this is also a time for the Biden administration potentially to reflect. And the reason why I say that is because Biden himself has said about his foreign policy that he wants to create a foreign policy for the middle class. Now, what does that mean? And the middle class actually includes a lot of the Pakistani diaspora. And they're listening and they're looking into Biden and they want to know how the Biden administration is going to engage with Pakistan. So, you know, the anti-American sentiment, yes, it's sometimes difficult. It can be challenging, especially when it's tied with the misinformation, especially when it's it's weaponized, like the way Imran Khan has done by spreading certain rumors and lies. But I also think that the United States, to some extent, needs to ignore that because the empirical information doesn't really match the rhetoric on the ground. For the most part, Pakistanis do like 
the United States. They do like Americans and they want to engage and they want to come here. And if that should really be the basis of the relationship rather than all the other nonsense that Imran Khan is spewing in rallies. Sahar Khan is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 